Chapter 9, Part 2 of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, Part 2 The Woman Rebel. Theodore Schroeder and I used to meet once in a while at the Liberal Club, and he gave me much sound advice. I could not go on with the woman rebel forever. Eventually, the post office would wear me down by stopping the issues as fast as I printed them. He warned, they won't do so-and-so unless you do thus and thus. If you do such and such, then you'll have to take the consequences. He was a good lawyer and an authority on the Constitution. When my family learned that I might be getting in deep water, a council was called just as when I had been a child. A verdict of nervous breakdown was openly decreed, but back in the minds of all was the unspoken dread that I must have become mentally unbalanced. They insisted father come to New York, where he had not been for forty years, to persuade me to go to a sanitarium. For several days, Father and I talked over the contents of the woman rebel. In his fine, flowing language, he expressed his hatred of it. He despised talk about revolution and despaired of anyone who could discuss sex, blaming this on my nursing training, which, he intimated, had put me in possession of all the known secrets of the human body. He was not quite sure what birth control was, and my reasoning, which retraced the pattern of our old arguments, made no impression upon him. Father would have nothing to do with the queer people who came to the house, people of whom no one had ever heard, turning up with articles on every possible subject and defying me to publish them in the name of free speech. I printed everything. For the August issue, I accepted a philosophical essay on the theory of assassination, largely derived from Richard Carlyle. It was vague, inane, and innocuous, and had no bearing on my policy except to taunt the government to take action, because assassination also was included under Section 211. Only a few weeks earlier, the war which Victor Dave had predicted had started its headlong progress. The very moment when most people were busy with geographies and atlases, trying to find out just where Sarajevo might be, the United States chose to sever diplomatic relations with me. One morning I was startled by the peremptory, imperious, and incessant ringing of my bell. When I opened the door, I was confronted by two gentlemen. Will you come in? They followed me into my living room, scrutinized with amazement the velocipede and wagon, the woolly animals and toys stacked in the corner. One of them asked, Are you the editor and publisher of a magazine entitled The Woman Rebel? When I confessed to it, he thrust a legal document into my hands. I tried to read it, threading my way slowly through the jungle of legal terminology. Perhaps the words became a bit blurred 
because of the slight trembling of my hands, but I managed to disentangle the crucial point of the message. I had been indicted, indicted on no less than nine counts for alleged violation of the federal statutes. If found guilty on all, I might be liable to forty-five years in the penitentiary. I looked at the two agents of the Department of Justice. They seemed nice and sensible. I invited them to sit down and started in to explain birth control. For three hours, I presented to their imaginations some of the tragic stories of conscript motherhood. I forget now what I said, but at the end they agreed that such a law should not be on the statute books. Yet it was, and there was nothing to do about it but bring my case to court. When the officers had gone, Father came through the door of the adjoining room where he had been reading the paper. He put both arms around me and said, Your mother would have been alive today if we had known all this then. He had applied my recital directly to his own life. You will win this case. Everything is with you, logic, common sense, and progress. I never saw the truth until this instant. Old-fashioned phraseology, but father was at last convinced. He went home quite proud, thinking I was not so crazy after all and began sending me clippings to help prove the case for birth control. Women who had drowned themselves or their children, and the brutalities of parents because even mother love might turn cruel if too hard-pressed. My faith was still childlike. I trusted that, like father, a judge representing our government would be convinced. All I had to do was explain to those in power what I was doing, and everything would come right. August 25th, I was arraigned in the old post office way downtown. Judge Hazel, himself a father of eight or nine children, was kindly, and I suspected the two federal agents who had summoned me had spoken a good word on my behalf. But Assistant District Attorney Harold A. Content seemed a ferocious young fellow. When the judge asked, What sort of things is Mrs. Sanger doing to violate the law? He answered, She's printing articles advocating bomb-throwing and assassination. Mrs. Sanger doesn't look like a bomb-thrower or an assassin. Mr. Content murmured something about not all being gold that glittered. I was doing a great deal of harm. He intimated he knew of my attempts to get family limitation in print when he said, She is not satisfied merely to violate the law, but is planning to do it on a very large scale. Judge Hazel, apparently believing the charges much exaggerated, put the case over until the fall term, which gave me six weeks to prepare my answer, and Mr. Content concurred, saying that if this were not enough time, I could have more. The press also was inclined to be friendly. Reporters came up to Post Avenue, looked over the various articles. They agreed, 
We think the government absolutely wrong. We don't see how it has any case. Unfortunately, while we were talking, Peggy, who had never seen a derby before, took possession of their hats and sticks, and in the hall a little parade of children formed, marching up and down in front of the door. One of the gentlemen was so furious that I hid Peggy in the kitchen away from his wrath. As he went out, he remarked, You should have birth controlled them before they were born. Why don't you stay home and spend some thought on disciplining your own family? I had many things to do which could not be postponed, the most important among them being to provide for the children's future. This occupied much of my time for the next few weeks. Temporarily, I sent the younger two to the Catskills and Stuart to a camp in Maine, arranging for school in the fall on Long Island. Defense funds were always being raised when radicals got into trouble to pay pseudo-radical lawyers to fight the cases on technicalities. I was not going to have any lawyer get me out of this. Since my indictment had not stopped my publishing The Woman Rebel, through the columns of the September issue, I told my subscribers I did not want pennies or dollars, but appealed to them to combine forces and protest on their own behalf against government invasion of their rights. That issue and the October one were both suppressed. During what might be called my sleepwalking stage, it was as though I were heading towards a precipice and nothing could awaken me. I had no ear for the objections of family or the criticism of friends. People were around me, I knew, but I could not see them clearly. I was deaf to their warnings and blind to their signs. When I review the situation through the eyes of those who gave me circumspect advice, I can understand their attitude. I was considered a conservative, even a bourgeois by the radicals. I was digging into an illegal subject, was not a trained writer or speaker or experienced in the arts of the propagandist had no money with which to start a rousing campaign, and possessed neither social position nor influence. In the opinion of nearly all my acquaintances, I would have to spend at least a year in jail, and they began to condole with me. None offered to do anything about it, just suggested how I could get through. One kind woman, whom I had never seen before, called late one evening and volunteered to give me dancing lessons. In a small six-by-four cabin, she had developed a system which she claimed was equally applicable to a prison cell and would keep me in good health. She even wrote out careful directions for combining proper exercises with the rhythm of the dance but I myself had no intention of going to jail. It was not in my program. One other thing I had to do before my trial. Family limitations simply must be published. I had at last found the right person, Bill Shadoff, Russian-born, big and burly, at that time a linotype operator on a foreign paper. 
so that nobody would see him, he did the job after hours when his shop was supposed to be closed. At first I had thought only of an addition of ten thousand. However, when I learned that union leaders in the silk, woolen, and copper industries were eager to have many more copies to distribute, I enlarged my plan. I would have liked to print a million, but owing to lack of funds, could not manage more than a hundred thousand. Addressing the envelopes took a lot of work. Night after night, the faithful band labored in a storage room, wrapping, weighing, stamping. Bundles went to the mills in the east, to the mines of the west, to Chicago, San Francisco, and Pittsburgh, to Butte, Lawrence, and Patterson. All who had requested copies were to receive them simultaneously. I did not want any to be circulated until I was ready and refused to have one in my own house. I was a tyrant about this, as firm as a general about leaving no rough edges. In October my case came up. I had had no notice, and without a lawyer to keep me posted, did not even know it had been called until the district attorney's office telephoned. Since Mr. Content had promised me plenty of time, I thought this was merely a formality, and all I had to do was put in an appearance. The next morning I presented myself at court. As I sat in the crowded room, I felt crushed and oppressed by an intuitive sense of the tremendous and personal power of my opponents. Popular interest was now focused on Europe. My little defiance was no longer important. When I was brought out of my reverie by the voice of the clerk trumpeting forth in the harshly mechanical tones of a train announcer, something about the people versus Margaret Sanger, there flashed into my mind a huge map of the United States, coming to life as a massive, vari-colored animal, against which I, so insignificant and small, must in some way defend myself. It was a terrific feeling. But courage did not entirely desert me. Elsie Clapp, whose ample Grecian figure made her seem a tower of strength, marched up the aisle with me, as though she, too, were to be tried. I said to Judge Hazel that I was not prepared, and asked for a month's adjournment. Mr. Content astonished me by objecting. Mrs. Sanger's had plenty of time, and I see no reason, Your Honor, why we should have a further postponement. Every day's delay means that her violations are increased. I ask that the case continue this afternoon. A change in Judge Hazel's attitude had taken place since August. Instead of listening to my request, he advised me to get an attorney at once. My trial would go on after the noon recess. I was so amazed that I could only believe his refusal was due to my lack of technical knowledge and suppose that at this point I really had to have a lawyer. I knew Simon H. Pollock, who had represented labor during the Patterson strike, and I went to see him. He agreed with me that a lawyer's plea would not be rejected, and that afternoon confidently asked for a month's stay. 
it was denied. He reduced it to two weeks. Again it was denied. At ten the following morning, the case was to be tried without fail. From the post office department, I received roundabout word that my conviction had already been decided upon. When I told this to Mr. Pollock, he said, There isn't a thing I can do. You'd better plead guilty and let us get you out as fast as we can. We might even be able to make some deal with the D.A. so you'd only have to pay a fine. I indignantly refused to plead guilty under any circumstances. What was the sense of bringing about my indictment in order to test the law and then admit that I had done wrong? I was trying to prove the law was wrong, not I. Giving Mr. Pollock no directions how to act, I merely said I would call him up. It was now four o'clock, and I sought refuge at home to think through my mental turmoil and distress. But home was crowded with too many associations and emotions pulling me this way and that. When my thoughts would not come clear and straight, I packed a suitcase, went back downtown, and took a room in a hotel, the most impersonal place in the world. There was no doubt in my mind that if I faced the hostile court the next morning, unprepared as I was, I would be convicted of publishing an obscene paper. Such a verdict would be an injustice. If I were to convince a court of the rightness of my cause, I must have my facts well marshaled, and that could not be done in eighteen hours. Then, there was the question of the children's welfare. Had I the right to leave them the heritage of a mother who had been imprisoned for some offensive literature of which no one knew the details? What was I to do? Should I get another lawyer, one with personal influence, who could secure a postponement? And should we then go into court together and fight it out? I had no money for such a luxury. Should I follow the inevitable suggestion of the I told you so's and take my medicine? Yes, but what medicine? I would not swallow a dosage for the wrong disease. I was not afraid of the penitentiary. I was not afraid of anything except being misunderstood. Nevertheless, in the circumstances, my going there could help nobody. I had seen so many people do foolish things valiantly, such as wave a red flag, shout inflammatory words, lead a parade, just for the excitement of doing what the crowd expected of them. Then they went to jail for six months, a year perhaps, and what happened? Something had been killed in them. They were never heard of again. I had seen braver and hardier souls than I vanquished in spirit and body by prison terms, and I was not going to be lost and broken for an issue which was not the real one, such as the entirely unimportant Woman Rebel articles. Had I been able to print family limitation earlier and to swing the indictment around that, going to jail might have had some significance. Going away was much more difficult than remaining. But if I were to sail for Europe, I could prepare my case adequately 
and return then to win or lose in the courts. There was a train for Canada within a few hours. Could I take it? Should I take it? Could I ever make those who had advised me against this work and these activities understand? Could I ever make anyone understand? How could I separate myself from the children without seeing them once more? Peggy's leg was swollen from vaccination. This kept worrying me, made me hesitate, anxious. It was so hard to decide what to do. Perfectly still, my watch on the table, I marked the minutes fly. There could be no retreat once I boarded that train. The torture of uncertainty, the agony of making a decision only to reverse it. The hour grew later and later. This was like both birth and death. You had to meet them alone. About thirty minutes before train time, I knew that I must go. I wrote two letters, one to Judge Hazel, one to Mr. Content, to be received at the desk the next day, informing them of my action. I had asked for a month, and it had been refused. This denial of right and freedom compelled me to leave my home and my three children until I made ready my case, which dealt with society rather than an individual. I would notify them when I came back. Whether this were in a month or a year depended on what I found it necessary to do. Finally, as though to say, make the most of it, I enclosed to each a copy of family limitation. Parting from all that I held dear in life, I left New York at midnight, without a passport, not knowing whether I could ever return. End of chapter 9, part 2